hurrah, hurrah, the country's rising. Free soil, free labor, free speech, free men. Peace, progress, prosperity. Let's make America great again. Change, forward, build back better for our future. These eight presidential slogans from American history are just a sample size of hundreds upon hundreds of slogans within our history. And ranging from the 1800s, which is where that first one came from, to the present, each slogan contains hope and promise, a promise of a better and brighter tomorrow. In one word, each slogan promises progress. And no matter who we are, from home life to work life, politics to school to even the church, we all have an idea of what progress should look like, feel like, sound like. At the end of the day, in all of life, we desire progress. But progress is a funny and fickle thing, right? Take those slogans, for example. For each person and party, progress looks very different. And whatever desired progress comes in for four to eight years before it's undone in the next. Progress is seemingly had and then gone. And in a way, this is how progress works in our own lives. Steps are taken forward and then backward, then forward again. We, prog- we progress or progress, and then we regress. We progress again. Sometimes we're aware of it in the moment. Other times we see it in hindsight. Progress is a funny and fickle thing in our lives. And spiritually speaking, God knows this about us. And thus he encourages us. He encourages the church through the hand of Paul in a letter called 1 Timothy on what true, lasting progress looks like in the Christian life. So if you have your Bible, please open it with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible with you today, you can find one under a chair near you. You can find 1 Timothy on page 932. If you're new to reading the Bible, the large numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. And you'll be helped to keep your Bible open to 1 Timothy chapter 4 this morning. Please follow along as I read. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, 
Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is God's word to the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you, we, that you would bless your word this morning, that you would feed us from it, that you would teach us from it. Spirit, we ask that you would turn the lights on in our dim hearts and our minds. May this not be just another Sunday, another service, another passage, but help us Holy Spirit, to be transformed by your word and reformed by it today. Cause us, Lord, to behold the living Jesus in its pages and come to better know him and live life like him today. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thus far in this letter that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to a pastor named Timothy. Thus far in this letter, we have discovered that a flourishing church, first and foremost, protects the entrusted message of the gospel. A flourishing church also prioritizes prayer, the payment, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus, and is committed to purposeful, complementary roles for men and women in public worship. It also has Christ-like leadership, as we saw last week, and lives out the truth of the gospel together. And today, in chapter 4, we discover that a flourishing church perceives unsound doctrine and persists in sound doctrine. A flourishing church perceives unsound doctrine 
and persists in sound doctrine. And to do this, the church must perceive false doctrine, progress by training for godliness, and persist in the faith. And that's our outline for today. Perceive, progress, persist. Perceive in verses 1 through 5. Progress in verses 6 through 10. Persist in verses 11 through 16. So, point one, perceive. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says that. Let's hold it right there. Now, sometimes when we're reading the Bible, we overlook the simplest of things, the simplest of beauties. I don't know if this is your, true of your life, but it's certainly true in mine. So this is an opportunity here to slow down. Because here at the start of this chapter, we read that God the Father, Son, and Spirit has spoken. How marvelous and how wonderful is that? It doesn't get any better than that. God is not deaf and he is not mute. No, he has spoken. He has given us his very voice. And he has spoken to us in his word and ultimately in the final word, according to Hebrews 1, the word made flesh, Jesus himself. These first handful of words ought to astound us in this chapter. Does it astound you? We're pressing in. In verses 1 through 3, what does the Spirit expressly or explicitly say? That in later times, or in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Here are the words of warning. These are words of warning that the church ought to perceive or to recognize, to detect unsound doctrine and those who espouse it. So let's walk through these, verse, these verses and, and just ask a series of questions as we walk through them. First, when will this happen? Well, it's going to happen in later times, which is the stamp and time span between Christ's death and resurrection and his return. So this is true of the church then, in the early church, and this is now, because Jesus has not come back yet, right? Now what will happen? Well, the text says that some will depart from the faith. Some who were a part of the church will depart from the church. Why? Because these individuals devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. These are teachings that are counterfeit and false. And these are doctrines, beliefs that are demonic. These are real teachings that stem from a real adversary, Satan and his legion. These teachings were present in the church then, and they are present in the church now. And who is leading and promoting these teachings? Well, verse 2 insincere liars. Paul warned the church that these liars, these false teachers would rise up in the church. He says this in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 30, where he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men 
speaking twisted things that draw the disciples away. Well, if you remember from chapter 1 in this letter, Paul has already been addressing these liars, these departers from the faith, who, as he had said, have devoted themselves to myths, endless genealogies, speculations, which are conspiracy theories. These teachers and those that followed them had swerved from the truth, as we read in chapter 1, and wandered away into vain speculation. They taught the law unlawfully, falsely. In the end, these women and men in the church had become apostate. They had abandoned Jesus. Some were even set outside of the church for it. Two were Hymenaeus and Alexander. I want us to notice something in verse 2. These individuals have seared consciences. Did you notice those? Just those two words. Two words. Seared consciences. Conscience is that inner uh, understanding that voice, if you will, of what's right and wrong. Paul says that these lying men and women don't have consciences that are healthy or sincere, good or alert. As Paul writes earlier in the letter, he's talked about conscience a couple times thus far. But instead, because of their sin, their pride, their heads and hearts that are full of unsound doctrine, their consciences have become seared, numb to the truth, like, like that story, Star Wars, and the character in it, Anakin Skywalker, you know what I'm talking about, who slowly and almost imperceptibly, thought by thought, decision by decision, grew more and more cold and numb to what is true and good. See, for these men and women, consci- the conscience volume the ability to distinguish right and wrong, what's sound and unsound, had been turned all the way almost down, if not all the way off. And this ought to give us pause. Brother, sister, how is your conscience? Could it be seared in one area or another? Is there a pattern of sin or a diet of false teaching that you know is it's not 100% correct, just maybe a little off, but that you've simply grown numb to? Maybe it's a pattern of viewing porn or the pursuit of worldly possessions. Maybe it's listening to a teacher who you like but says some things that are kind of off. Maybe it's the, the pattern of pride in the form of a, a holier-than-you than spirituality that inoculates you from the truth. Maybe because of patterns in one form or another, you have developed a seared conscience and you have blind spots in your life that you just cannot see clearly. On the other hand, maybe your conscience isn't seared but oversensitive causing you to to be overly introspective, causing you to to put unneeded demands and burdens spiritually, emotionally, maybe even physically upon yourself. Maybe this has caused you to put those same demands, burdens on others that Scripture doesn't permit you to. If your conscience is seared, 
or oversensitive, there is grace upon grace in Jesus for you. So I pray that you would go to him. You'd repent of that area of your life. That you'd walk in newness of life. That you'd bring another brother or sister along with you in that process of conscious awakening. What was, what was the message of these false teachers, this false teaching these, with seared consciences? Well, verse 3, that marriage and certain foods were bad. This is called asceticism. That's a $2 word that means self-denial or abstinence from some, some, something. Uh, this false teaching in the church of Ephesus promoted abstinence from marriage and certain foods like meat. This false teaching in the church of Ephesus promoted abstinence in a way that harmed marriage and saw it as unimportant and even unbiblical. These false teachers were teaching a false, quasi-law-driven self-denial of these things. They were teaching that denial of these things equaled godliness. And Paul is saying, church, y'all got to detect this. Y'all got to perceive this. This is not right. This is not true. This is dead wrong. Because these things, verse 4, are God-created and should be thanksgiving-producing. For all things created by God are good and not to be rejected, but received with thanksgiving. That's what he says. For they are, verse 5, made holy by God's word and prayer. Now, because of the fall, sin touches all of God's good creation. And so we have a tendency to take good gifts, good things, and mutilate and manipulate them, right? But you might be thinking, what's so bad about a little asceticism? I mean, come on. I mean, a little, just a little asceticism. You might be thinking, that this, this sounds like a cultural issue for then and not really now. We've progressed because in churches like our own, we know that biblical marriage is good and we know that we can eat what we want because of Christian freedom. What's the big deal? Well, here's the underlying problem of asceticism. By subtraction, asceticism adds to the gospel. By subtraction, asceticism adds to the work of Jesus in the gospel. And here's what I mean by that. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus plus nothing equals salvation and godliness in the Christian life. That's what the Bible teaches. Jesus is the aim and sum of all sound doctrine and sound living. Amen? Amen. Paul already said this at the end of chapter 3. Remember from last week. And in the words of Philip Jensen, Paul is not proclaiming the mystery of goodliness here. He's proclaiming the mystery of godliness, which is Jesus himself. Jesus is our righteousness. He is our godliness. In the words of Arkent Hughes, Jesus is the essence and wellspring of godliness. He is the gospel, and he is our godliness for all who have repented and believed in him. And he and the Holy Spirit enables us to progress and persist in the gospel and godliness until glory. And we're going to hear more about that in just a moment. But asceticism says, Jesus plus abstaining from certain things equals salvation and godliness. But that is a different gospel, right? 
That's a different gospel. It's a counterfeit gospel. And it's false and it's, de- it's demonic. That is Jesus plus works. Yes, a Christian carries his or her cross and pursues godliness and abstains from sin. And that may come, that may come in the form of abstaining from something in your life. Sure. But any theology that adds to Jesus for salvation says that the work of Jesus is not finished. It says the gospel's half-baked, half-complete. And we're to perceive and reject gospels like that. We reject them. Because the true gospel of Jesus tells a better story. It says that Christ lived a perfect life, a godly life that, that we couldn't, that he died a horrific death that we deserved for our own sin against God and, for one another, and against one another. He rose again three days later, securing salvation for those who are his. The work is finished, brothers and sisters. It's done. There is no more work to do. And as my pastoral mentor used to say before he entered glory, we are saved by works, just not our own. If you've repented of sin, and they're continuing to lay all self-atoning, self-righteous, self-denying ways of salvation at the feet of Jesus and are looking to him for salvation today, then you belong to him. He is your salvation. He is your godliness. He is your rest. And nothing can change that. Nothing can change that. But if you are here today and you, you think that you're saved by good works or if you're, that you're saved by by some sort of quasi-spiritual life where I do some good things in order to gain more karma. Well, that's a false gospel. So I'll be standing in the back after service today, or you can find another pastor here. We would love to talk with you about the true gospel of Jesus and the work that has been done by him and in him alone for salvation for sinners. But church, I ask you, are you potentially today adding to the gospel in some area of your life, in some area of your theology? Would you say Jesus plus nothing equals salvation and godliness? Yeah, but what about A, B, C, or X, Y, Z? What about those things? Could it be Jesus plus one of those equals salvation for you? I would ask you to consider that question. To maybe even ask a spouse or a friend, someone in your care group, your Bible study, have you ever heard me knowingly or unknowingly add to the gospel when I'm talking about Jesus? Well, as people who are prone to wander and are prone to spiritual and even doctrinal amnesia, may we perceive unsound doctrine, hold fast to the true gospel as Christ himself together, putting these unsound doctrine, this unsound doctrine and unsound gospels away, putting them to death individually and collectively. And let's keep sound doctrine and the sound gospel of Jesus the center of our life together. And with the help of Christ and the Holy Spirit, may we progress in the truth of godliness. So that brings us to point two, progress. Let's read verses six through 10. If you put these things before the brothers and, and sisters, actually, because that's the word Adelphoi in the Greek. If you put these things before the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith 
and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Well, maybe you've heard the expression, just put what, one foot in front of the other. You ever heard that? Just put one foot in front of the other. It's actually uh, a song, or it was made a song in one of those classic Christmas films. Put one foot in front of the other. Okay. Well, this statement assumes two things. It assumes two things. First, that you have two feet. And second, that you're going somewhere. Christian life is directional. We're pilgrims in motion. This expression here is an illustration of what Paul is saying and has been saying thus far in the letter. And here's what I mean. So, so track with me just for a moment. He is saying, okay, you know the entrusted message of the gospel. I wrote about that in chapter one. You know the importance of prayer and the payment and the purposeful roles of men and women in the church and in home life. You know that from chapter two. You know what Christian leadership looks like, Christ-like leadership looks like for pastors and deacons. You know what it looks like to live out the truth of the gospel together. I, I spoke about that or I wrote about that back in chapter three. Okay, great. You, you know sound doctrine and the source of it, and you know how to perceive unsound doctrine, case in point, this asceticism that's kind of permeating, percolating there in the church of Ephesus. You know all of these things. And you need to take these things, Timothy, pastors, and churches like EBC, you need to, you need to faithfully walk now in these things. Because verse 6, you have been trained in the words of faith, the word and gospel, and you have received good or sound doctrine. Now put one foot in front of the other and walk together and progress together. Brothers and sisters, this is important. You and I can only give from what we have received. We can only walk in accordance with what we know. And we can only do the dues of the Christian life, of the faith, upon what has been done by Jesus. See, it's only after that we've been made aware of and developed and exposed to Jesus and his word that we can progress. We can put one foot in front of the other and help others progress in godliness. And that's called discipleship. So what does this tangibly look like? Well, we, just like the church of Ephesus, must first put away unsound doctrine, irreverent, silly myths. That's what he says in verse 7 which include false views of the person and work of Jesus and true godliness, we talked about a moment ago. And second, train ourselves for godliness and progress in godliness. Here Paul becomes Coach Paul, puts his coaching hat on. He becomes our, our personal trainer and encourages us to exercise, not just physically to one degree or another, which is important, but also, more importantly, spiritually, right? Spiritually. 
4 verse 8, he says, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And we lay hold of present and future promises today when we train for godliness today. And so how do we tangibly do this? How do we train for godliness? Well, here are, here are a handful of spiritual exercises. Kind of lift right out of this text. Handful of, of spiritual exercises to spiritually progress. Here, here, we, here we go. First, we gather. We gather with the Lord's people on the Lord's day to hear from the Lord's word. That's the first discipline of a Christian life. When we gather together for worship, we are equipped with sound doctrine. That's what we're doing here as a church right now so that we can rightly perceive unsound doctrine. When we gather, we, according to Hebrews 10, 23-25, we learn to better hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering and walk with our promise-making and promise-keeping God who is faithful. When we gather, we have opportunity to also stir one another up to love and good works as we see the day drawing near. Oh, how good it is when we gather and do these things. For when we don't gather, we find ourselves in the position like Jesus was in the wilderness, vulnerable, under attack from Satan because we are isolated. When we don't gather, also our muscles, our spiritual muscles fatigue. And they eventually atrophy. And sooner than later, we become spiritually immobile and unhealthy. So first, we gather. Second, we read and study. We read and study. We read God's word. We study it. We meditate upon it. You have heard that a healthy lifestyle starts in the kitchen with what we eat. Well, the same goes for our spiritual life. Same goes. And Scripture is to be our main dish in our spiritual diet. For according to Hebrews 5, 13 through 14, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And what is that solid food? It's God's good and sufficient word filled with good, sound doctrine. So it's not too late to start a Bible reading plan. We're a long way from January, I know. But if you need help with finding one, you can reach out to the, to the church office. We would love to help you find one. We should also, in order to do this, we should be reading good theology. Now, I recognize that not everyone in this room is a reader, but by God's grace, I'm pretty sure that most of us are able to read. And that is a gift. That is a gift from God. So what are you reading outside of Scripture? Are they sound resources encouraging you in the faith? Or are they potentially unsound? Brothers and sisters, this is why we have a book stall to recommend sound reading and sound doctrine. So utilize it for your good for the glory of God. Don't attempt to live and thrive on a fast food diet of popular evangelical books. They will generally spiritually leave you malnourished. 
and you will become even jelly over time. But read and study God's word and sound theology and you will find yourself built up, strong, and better trained in the faith. Third, we pray. We pray to the Father, through Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, to enable us to grow in godliness. Paul has already encouraged this earlier in the letter, in chapter 2. But it must be repeated here. When we're talking about training for godliness, prayer was central to Jesus' life. It was central to Paul's life. ought to be central to ours. So pray. Pray personally. Pray with your spouse, with your children. Pray with and for other members of EBC through the, the member prayer directory. If you don't have one, reach out to the church office or maybe you can find one in the foyer after the service. And let me encourage you just to reach out to maybe another member of EBC this week and just ask if you can't get together with them in person. Just say, hey, can I call you one day a week just for the month of June and just pray with you for 10 minutes? Just 10 minutes. Just for the month of June. Nothing crazy. Just for the month of June. You will not be spiritually disappointed. You will be nourished and further trained for godliness. Do you wish to grow in godliness? Do you wish to to become a better and more devout Christian? Well, then gather and read and study and pray. Well, Coach Paul goes on to say, verse 9, what I'm telling you is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He's saying this is not a get-fit, quick scheme here. This is a manipulation. This encouragement is trustworthy. And it's coming from a trustworthy source who was imitating Christ. He hoped those around him would imitate Christ as well. He says there in verse 10, this is why he is toiling and striving. But where is his hope set? Not in himself or his own efforts, but on the living God. Did you notice that? Here, once again, Coach Paul is exhorting us, especially in our training for godliness, to not make ourselves the hopeful means and end of progressing in godliness. But he is exhorting us to look to God who enables us to progress in godliness for our joy and his glory. So, brother, sister, where are you setting your hope today? Where are you setting your hope? Set it on Jesus, who is the hope of God embodied. Set your eyes on him as you train and toil and strive. And know that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion on the last day. That's a promise. Well, verse 10 ends with the truth that God is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. And this verse is similar to chapter 2, verse 4. It's been used by uh, lots of people within the church and outside of the church to argue for kind of a universal atonement, that that Jesus died for all people uh, in spite of whether or not they repent, believe, or, or place their faith in him. But this is not compatible with God's word, nor compatible with what Paul has written in other letters. For Paul writes to the church in Rome, in Romans 8, that those whom God predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those whom he has justified, he also glorified. The Spirit is not at odds with the Spirit here. Paul is not at odds with Paul here. 
he is not speaking out of both sides of his mouth. That would make him an insincere liar. The very thing he's warning the church about. He's not watering down or, or kind of diversifying his theology to appease those who hold to a universal atonement. He's not doing that here. No, he is just saying that God predestines, elects, and he also desires all to be saved, especially those who believe, especially. So let's not boil this down to foolish debate, but let's revel in the salvation that God has made available to sinners through Jesus. This verse is an opportunity to do that. Not debate, but revel in the goodness of God in providing salvation for any sinner. Well, in these verses, Paul has called the church to progress by training for godliness, by continuing to follow Christ and to progress in good, sound doctrine. Again, what we believe drives how we behave. It's true of the church then. It's true of the church now. But it's one thing to progress, and it's another thing to persist. One thing to progress, it's another thing to persist. As mentioned earlier, even in the Christian life, progress can be so fickle, right? And so Paul presses on here calling pastors and churches to not only progress, but to also persist in the faith. And that brings us to point three, um, persist. Look with me at verses 11 through 16. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, and so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearer. Well, maybe you've heard me tell this story before, but in a year long, long ago, in a galaxy far, far away, when I was in third grade, I played drums. I started playing drums that year in the school band, and I was loving it. I was loving it. So naturally, by fourth grade, I really wanted to play drum set. And so I went to my mom, who was in a sweet worship band called Destination Known. So I went to my mom and I said, hey, mom, I really want a drum set. And she very tenderly and lovingly told me, son, you, you can't walk and chew gum at the same time. It was true. I wasn't the most coordinated, especially as a child. But that didn't stop me. In spite of my limitations, my my parents ended up buying me a drum set. And with time and good instruction and lots and lots of, you guessed it, practice, I eventually received a college scholarship for playing drums. And then I ended up playing drums for a season of my life for a living. Now, my story isn't special. Or original. I don't tell you this story because I'm, I, because I'm special. Everyone in this room likely has had something that they've had to pursue that required time and discipline and practice to get better at, right? Am I the only one? No. So whether you're a musician or an athlete, a writer, a photographer, a quilter, a trail hiker, sky's the limit. Lots of different 
variety here. But there is one central ingredient. You know that there's one central ingredient required to grow in that discipline or in that hobby. And what is it? Persistence. Requires persistence to grow. Well, this section of the text is a call to persistence, a call to perseverance. But how? How will the church from pastor to pew or from, uh, from pastor to chair, how will the church be able to do this, to be able to persist? Well, Paul gives four key encouragements in this section. Four key encouragements. And they're connected to four key words. Sound example. He must be a sound example, one who is of sound devotion, sound confidence, and he must engage in sound practice. Example, devotion, confidence, and practice. These encouragements may have been given to a pastor, brothers and sisters, but in principle, they are for all of us. There are some that are specific to the pastorate here, but in principle, they are applied to all all Christians in this room. So first, sound example. Unpacking this, verse 11, Timothy is to command and teach these things. Not just anything that he wants, but these things that that Paul has been teaching him. Timothy is to put sound doctrine before the church. But Timothy had some opposition, right, from these false teachers. But he also had opposition from some older folks in the congregation, these men and women didn't want to be taught by a younger man. That's what we see, that's what we see here in, in this chapter. But though the older in the church are to be respected by the younger, Paul's going to say that in the next chapter, age is not always a sign of wisdom. And so, verse 12, Timothy was not to let any person in the church despise him because of his age. In other words, not, they were not to look down on him because he was younger but he was supposed to set an example in word, action, love, faith, purity, as Paul writes. In short, his life was to be an example of Christ's life before others. His life was to match what he taught. This is a call for Timothy, and this is a call for all of us today. Second, sound devotion. What was Timothy to be? persistently devoted to? What are we to be devoted to? Well, public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching. And the order is really important here. The order is important. Notice that the reading of Scripture goes first. Why is that? Because the Word of God is what's authoritative. That's where the, that's where the authority is. The, the exhortation and the teaching flows out of its authority. And so, Paul is encouraging the church here to devote itself to God's Word, to God's Word being read and exposited and applied in the gathering. We are to be persistently devoted to this. We who are prone, again, to spiritual amnesia need to be reminded of the truth. That's why we gather each Lord's Day to hear from the Lord's Word. And not just gather, just to gather. We gather to hear the Word of God read and applied. In order to persist in the faith, we must devote, be devoted to the hearing and receiving of God's Word. And we, third, must have a sound confidence. Now, this is unique to Timothy, but there is a lesson here for us. 
where is Timothy to, be, to, to find his confidence? Well, as Paul has already written, it's to be found in Jesus, first and foremost. Jesus is Timothy's confidence. He's our confidence. But in a secondary sense, the secondary sense, Paul is encouraging Timothy to look to the, to the day where he was ordained, set apart for the work of ministry, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Ordination is, is beautiful. The, the, the process of ordination where a, a pastor is called to a specific church and set apart to do the work of a pastor, that's not magical or mystical, but it's beautiful and it's important. And, and Paul is telling Timothy, hey, you should, you should be confident in Christ. You should be confident in the day that you were ordained to do this work before the church so that the church can go and further do that work as well. Fourth, sound practice. And this is where, where Paul has been driving this whole chapter. Timothy is to verse 16, keep a close watch on himself and on the teaching. He's to persist in this, for in doing so, he'll both save himself and his hearers. Now, question, can Timothy literally save himself and his hearers? No. That's above his pay grade. It's above my pay grade. That's God's work through the gospel. Paul's made that point over and over again. But he is saying that you are to be a vessel and you're to practice these, these things of, of, of sound truth to be a vessel of that truth to the church. To practice these things, not only you, but the whole church, keeping a close watch on your teaching and life. See, the Christian life is a public life for the, for the pastor and for the, for the member of a church. The Christian life is not to be privatized, but it's public. At the end of the day, there's no such thing as a private Christian. There are only public Christians. And that's why Paul says, you must, believers, especially pastors, believers, you must watch your life. In a, in a time of rampant moral failure, this is so important. We are to watch our lives. And that's intimately connected with what the, the doctrine we hold to what we believe. So we're to watch our lives and watch our doctrine, but I want you to consider something this morning. That your persistence in these things of watching your life and watching your doctrine, this is not just lived out before God, quorum Deo, but this is also lived out before others, quorum Mundo. So have you, have you considered that you living out your Christian life and holding fast to sound doctrine, it's actually for the benefit of others. It's not just for your personal life. It's for the benefit of the church. And so there's an exhortation here to all of us to watch our life and watch our doctrine and to uphold the beauty of the gospel together until Christ returns. Now, we as Christians have a potential, we can potentially uh, veer from this. Again, we're, we're prone to spiritual amnesia. We can begin to think of our lives as kind of this private Christian experience. Um, but 
right now we're publicly gathered as an expression that our faith and that our worship is public. And so every time we gather, brothers and sisters, every time we gather, let's remember these words. When we leave this place, when we scatter, may we remember these words, to watch our life and doctrine closely. Well, we should close. A flourishing church perceives unsound doctrine and persists in sound doctrine. That's the the truth of this chapter to the church today. So, how are we doing? How are we doing? Are we together perceiving unsound doctrine? Are we together progressing and training for godliness? Not just individually, but collectively as a church family. And are we together persisting in the faith as we see the destined day arise and Christ comes? May we progress and persist in Christ, brothers and sisters, remaining steadfast until he appears and all strivings cease forevermore. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you and we thank you and rejoice in the redemption that you have planned and accomplished and have applied to your people. And we ask that you would grow us as Christians, that you would grow us in our faithfulness in life and doctrine, and that you would continue to give us what we have not and teach us what we know not, and make us what we are not for the glory of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.